Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's me, Panel Beater, um, alongside my esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Sharma and and uh, <laughs> I've just drawn a blank, Neo. <laughs> oh my goodness, your esteemed colleagues, and then you really had to just go. Do I have any? Do I have any? And you struggled, yeah. and you said my name, and then Dr. Neo. I mean, you still haven't actually. Not, is, is he esteemed? Not, not only am I locked out of the. The, the station, but you forgot my name. Out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Um, yeah, you're the, you're being a COVID kid at the moment. I am. I was. I was just really wanting to get some, you know, lived experience. <laughs> yeah. This whole pandemic thing. A bit so of standpoint I, epistemology. Yeah, you know, I think it's important that we um we really explore uh, exactly what our patients are feeling. No, I um I did manage to get the big. The big C, the spicy cough. The spicy cough. Um, do you know? Do you know how you got it? Uh, yes, I do. It was a wedding. Um, uh, in a classic 2022 fashion, I think weddings will be uh, a common source. Um, yeah, right. You know what? It was. It was a nice wedding. I'll give them that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how is the uh, how is the big C manifesting itself for you? Are you? I can. I can see you on Skype. You're looking well, though. Um, I am incredibly grateful for being blessed. Um, it was a bad head cold for me uh-huh. for a couple of days, and now I'm back to being completely asymptomatic around day five, day six. Right. So just a bit antsy to get out of um, get out of quarantine. Yeah, I bet. But I bet. Other than other than that, um, being a nice nice excuse to to sleep in and. <laughs> catch, up on, catch up on some TV. Yeah, yeah, good one, good one. What about you, Dr. Sharma? I've been all right, I can't complain. You're still dodging bullets like me? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Neo from the Matrix. As you call me Neo. That's, that's You need to relinquish <laughs> your title, uh, Dr. Neo, and hand it over to me. No, I've been good so far. Um, but, you know, it's it's an interesting time. Like, there's a lot of cases around, but the R is definitively below one in Victoria now. So, mm. yeah, on one hand, you feel like, God, my chances are better than ever. On the other hand, the probability just kind of adds up. Uh, but, you know, I've done the most important things. I'm, I'm boosted. And, uh, and and that's that. And the, the rest will see. Hey, uh, Dr. Sharma and uh, Neo, we've got another voice in the studio joining us today. Special special guest co-host, Dr. Yeah. Dilemma. Good morning, Dr. Dilemma. Uh, good morning, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's fabulous to have you join us for the show. You'll be with us for the whole show, which is really fabulous news. Um, now, you um, you know Dr. Neo. That's your that's your front door, isn't uh, it? That was my shoo-in, yes, um, <laughs> I do. Um, I've worked with Dr. Neo um, over the last year or so, so listen to him on the show and I'm, yeah, very excited to have been Excellent. invited on as a guest yeah. host today. Fantastic to have you with us. And so what is your at the Children's? That's right, yes, it's my first time working in a uh, paediatric role uh, as a junior doctor, so yeah, it's a very exciting time for me. How's that going so far? Fantastic, yeah. I'm really, really loving it. I'm starting working uh, out the year in a mental health position, which is actually an outcome of the uh, the Royal Commission into Mental Health. Uh, they've created some more 
uh, roles for junior doctors to learn more about the mental health system in right. Victoria. So that's my role's a, a new one this year. So, um, yeah, it's been a fantastic experience. Really so far. interesting. What does that look like? What, what, is, what does that mean? What's the training mean and the role? Yeah, so I've got a three month position working in psychiatry, um, particularly in the um, eating disorder area, yep. um, which has been very fascinating. And we're provided um, many. Uh, learning opportunities and um, great supervision and mentorship from my seniors um, to learn about the mental health system and uh, it's to, obviously to encourage us to consider psychiatry as a as a career mm-hmm. um, but nonetheless which uh, wherever you take your your medical career, um, the experience in, in mental health will be invaluable. So. Also, I think it's it's such a great place to have junior doctors with something like eating disorders. We're talking about people in their teens, late teens, who are the patients. We know so much of the challenge in medicine is, is having that kind of two-way relationship between uh, doctor and patient. It's great to hear that there's a new position opened up, and this is, I think, exactly where we need junior yeah. doctors. Yeah, well, it's one of many. There's, there's yeah, been over 100 over the state. Um, this year, um, increased positions. So, yeah, it's a fantastic um, initiative. Are you, in in my mind's eye, when I um, speak to people like uh, Dr Neo um, and now yourself and others that we bump into from time to time on the show, um, in your very early career, are you single-minded or are you still making lots of decisions about where you're going? Very much the latter. Uh, the more <laughs> I experience, the more I go, oh, oh, I've quite liked this. And then I experience something else and I go, oh, I've quite liked that too. So um, I haven't closed any doors really yet. Um, uh, very much open to having... A number of, I'd like to get a bit more experience across lots of areas before choosing any particular yeah. path to go down. I think that's that's my. How much, um, how, how flexible do you feel if professional life is at the moment with those decisions? Are you are you getting under the pump from any quarters? Um, I have been very lucky that this year I'll have four different three month rotations in a huge spectrum of um, areas of the hospital and um, so I'll get a little finger in lots of different pies before I before I make any any big decisions um, so it kind of exciting that the the world's still kind of my nice oyster one. but yeah nice one. One, of the, one of the big um, the big problems with this stage of training which is something that we could probably discuss at a later time is the uh, it's not so much the training opportunities, but also, but it's largely the end game. You know, the the consultant um, yes. positions are few and far between in the public system for a lot of different specialties, and that's for good reason. And in that, they don't need a abundance of doctors um, in some of the very niche subspecialties. But uh, I think that's the big big bottleneck, if you will. Mm. You, mm. Uh, in our training path. Yeah, right, right. Hey, that's maybe something we can pick up, uh, go back to on um, on, on training and um, uh, professional pathways uh, another time. But uh, we've got a big show to look forward to. Uh, Dr Neo, you've lined up an interesting uh, guest for us. Yeah, we are going to be joined by uh, the paediatrician and psychiatrist, Dr Andrew Court, uh, who will be discussing his experience working with eating disorders, particularly throughout the pandemic, and we might get him to touch on a couple of these other different uh, and equally interesting conditions that he's been seeing throughout the pandemic and what changes uh, has occurred in his practice. I'm very excited and very privileged to be joined by Dr. Court today. Yeah, yeah, really looking forward to that. And Dr. Sharma, you've got a uh, basket full of thoughts. 
Yes, uh, this is something really fascinating. Uh, around the world now, over the last few weeks, we've discovered a couple of hundred cases of hepatitis amongst kids. And the, the yeah. thing is, we don't know why. Yeah. We don't know what's going on. There are a bunch of different hypotheses and lots of fighting yeah. uh, over what the cause might be. And so we're going to get into deep into that. Brilliant, brilliant. It's a long time since I've actually heard any news in any way about hepatitis. So when I, when it did sort of pop up in a just a news headline, that's my, that's my exposure to it. Um, it was kind of kind of striking. And then, as you say, it looks like there's a bit of mystery. There is a bit of mystery. And again, it's we are looking at something we haven't looked at uh, for a while in hepatitis but very much through the lens of some very topical recent issues. So we'll we'll save that for later. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, and we're up to edition four of um, Pop Goes Your Health. Oh, yes. This one, well, I'm very... I was contacted about this one by a friend of a friend. So oh, is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and today we're going to be taking a look at um, nasal tanning spray. And um, yeah, and for those who may not have uh, caught any of the previous four, uh, three episodes of Pop Goes Your Health, it's just a a, a, a a segment that where where we take a look at some kind of trend in the wellness industry and uh, sort of put a put a lens over it to see if there's any legitimacy at all. Um, <laughs> so far, so no, we're not really coming up with much on that front. Um, I think we're zero for three. On zero that. for three. Zero for three on that. Um, but we'll talk more about n- nasal. Uh, tanning spray uh, at the tail end of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest speaker today and one of my mentors. It's Dr. Andrew Court, who's bringing to the show a wealth of knowledge and experience. He first trained in paediatrics at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne and initially worked as a paediatrician. Later, he developed his interest in child psychiatry and went on to complete formal psychiatry training. And over his career, Dr. Courts worked as the clinical director of the Geelong Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service and at Origin Youth Health, where he was involved in setting up their eating disorder outpatient service. About 15 years ago, Dr. Court returned to the Children's Hospital, where he has worked in consultation liaison psychiatry, which is a discipline that provides mental health input to patients admitted on the medical wards. And he currently shares the clinical lead role of the Royal Children's Hospital Eating Disorder Service. Dr. Court also, somehow in between us all, finds time to work in private practice outside of his public appointments. In addition to anorexia nervosa, Dr. Court has a strong professional interest in what he terms as mind-body presentations and in working with young people who suffer from what are known as functional or somatizing or, or medically unexplained symptoms. So we are very lucky to have Dr. Court as a guest on Radiotherapy today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Court. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Cott, uh, as we mentioned, an, an interest of yours is, is with young people who suffer from eating disorders, particularly the eating disorder known as anorexia nervosa. It's been reported a lot in the media over the last couple of years that the, the number of young people uh, who are suffering from eating disorders has, has really skyrocketed throughout the pandemic, um, pandemic time. Could you explain to our listeners this morning what anorexia nervosa is and, and why it might be that the rates of anorexia, as well as other eating disorders, have, have increased so much during the pandemic? Sure. 
So what Anorex Innovosa is, is a, well, at least what I believe it is and what I think many people would agree with, is a preoccupying and intense, overwhelming, tormenting experience of one's body being fat and awful, even though it is thinner, thinner than it should be. So mm -hmm. it's this intense anxiety in one's body, and alongside that one has an inner voice which tells you that the only way that that anxiety and stress will disappear is if you lose weight. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, the more you lose weight, the more that voice gets louder, and so that distress in one's body is actually more extreme when your weight is low than when it was at its original weight. I think it's important to recognise the difference between that experience and what I've, I believe is probably a pretty universal experience of young adolescents or young women and some boys of feeling unhappy in their body and feeling uh, it's comparing themselves to other young people and wanting to lose weight and wanting to restrict. Um, but that experience is very different to, to, to that experience by anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. I used to have a a feeling that understanding what anorexia was about was was deeply rooted in past psychodynamic theories or experiences. But the more I've been involved with anorexia nervosa, my perception is that the, the, the classic anorexia that we see in its early stages is actually quite simple, despite being very distressing and tormenting. And that is that you probably only need two things to get anorexia, that's that, that sort of classic anorexia. One is one is a, a vulnerability to getting anorexia, um, and that is we can't really measure that other than knowing that if you're a young woman, in particular you're at risk, also things like um, having obsessive compulsive disorder or anxiety disorder similar, or particular personality styles such as being perfectionistic or striving, as well as actually having a, a biological genetic background uh, history is, is another risk factor. Um, you need that, plus if someone with that vulnerability loses some weight for whatever reason, that seems to trigger that experience of anorexia nervosa. And as I say, my perception is that it's as simple as that in its early stages, though the longer it goes on for, the more complicated it gets, and it is also possible to, uh, for it to come out of a complicated, difficult space. Now, in under certainly it's true, as you were saying at the beginning, that there is no doubt at all, both here in Melbourne and Australia and internationally, that the rates of anorexia nervosa in particular have increased exponentially over the time of COVID. Uh, my, having assessed quite a few of these young people, my... My, my perception of what leads, what has led to this increase is this notion of, or a combination of two things probably. One is a combination of a general increase in anxiety and stress across the, the, the whole population. But more importantly, I think it's, a, it's been a matter of being shut down in lockdown with one's thoughts. And so that, that what is described is by these young people is that normally, even though they're there, they are, have been able to distract themselves on those thoughts by being involved in the normal run and day of life and going to school. But when shut down in lockdown, they were shut down on their own and started exercising or restricting and found that they could do it. And that got out of control. Um, that's my perception, I mean, I could, we could talk about it more, but that's my perception of, of the, the main reason why, in, in, again, it's just anecdotal, but, but my experience is that it seems to have increased exponentially. Uh, Dr. Cord, it's a panel beta here. Just thinking about um, the the context of COVID, and and therefore by definition, these young people are at home by themselves. 
Um, in other disorders uh, uh, with with young people, we often hear about clusters, you know, where people within friendship groups actually start to trend in a particular direction with each other. Now, obviously, if these young people are, are by themselves and isolated, um, clustering's not happening. Is, it a, is, is, is that a fair compare and contrast? Uh, it's a very interesting thing, this whole idea of clustering and contagion and so, so forth. And I guess just, you know, clearly also in this day and age, being alone in your room certainly allows you to have... You've still got contacts through social media right. in a significant way, um, which can also lead to that sort of clustering. Um, my, my own kind of perception is that um, well, we certainly have... Part of the whole idea of clustering or different presentations is, is different presentations of anxiety and stress, and, I, and I, my perception is that part of the part of the idea of, of, of things developing out of out of clustering situations, if you like, is, is they they bring to the fore a particular way of presenting one's stress, which becomes a thing. It becomes a recognised thing, which people recognise as a a way of expressing or uh, expressing in one's anxiety or stress, which is acceptable in, in, one's, in that group um, and, and in, on that, that particular stage versus other ways of expressing one's anxiety and stress, which are less, which perhaps might be more or less socially acceptable in that group. So just to be clear, when you sorry, uh, uh, Dr. Court, it's, it's uh, Dr. Sharma here. Now, when you're talking about that expression being acceptable in a group, it sounds like you're talking here about anorexia. Um, so that may be the mode that amongst this group it is expressed. But so, do we know how you know, quote unquote, contagious that is? Like, how has there been any research quantifying how? Um, what that risk is of you know, is of that kind of spreading within that social group. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking about anorexia here, because as I thought, we, as the question sort of started off back then with, with contagion in, in social groups, um, and, and I, my own kind of perception that has included a number of different disorders, um, which can present in different ways, um, which we could we could elaborate on. But anorexia itself, uh, I'm not sure how much is purely contagion versus how much is, as I say, this. This, uh, this thing locked down in one's own thoughts in someone who's vulnerable. I, I think that, I don't have any doubt, that contagion through uh, social media, TikTok and other social media outlets uh, does increase the, 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 uh, the risk of these behaviours getting out of hand. But it's, and there's no doubt about that in terms of not only what we see on, in young people on on the wards with, with eating disorders, that it's exacerbated and made worse by contagion through, uh, through social media. But how much is actually causing anorexia to actually turn that early phase? I think it's very hard to know and very hard to re research. Thank you, Dr. Court, for, um, for that. Mm -hmm. I, it's um, Dr. Neo Kieran here. Um, mm -hmm. I, it's fascinating hearing your perspective on um, this uh, perceived rate of increase of anorexia nervosa. I guess uh, what I'm interested in is if your practice has changed since the pandemic um, started with these different, almost different ideology of uh, anorexia. And I get, I guess, uh, notwithstanding all of the changes that have happened to the healthcare workforce and all the changes to the ability to provide the care that we need to, but 
has the change has your practice changed in managing anorexia nervosa over the past couple of years? Uh, well, my main focus of managing anorexia has been in the public system of the Royal Children's Hospital with eating disorder service there, though I have seen some young people in my private practice. But in terms of um, managing anorexia nervosa in the public service, it's changed dramatically. Um, and it's changed dramatically because of the increased numbers and how we as a service have had to adapt to manage the extraordinary increase in numbers and the fact that we just have not had the workforce to, to deal with it. So. It's moved very much from working with individuals um, and individual families to manage anorexia to work in group settings with, with, group fa with family interventions involving groups as a whole um, and, recognize, and then moving on from groups to individuals when we can from a resource point of view and for those that are more se severely affected. Uh, Dr. Court, it's fascinating to hear that it's actually uh, logistics and resource limitations that are influencing the, the management here. That said, you know, ever since I went to medical school, it's been a little while now. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was, yes, hasn't yeah. it all for all of us? Um, you know, at, at that time, there was this sense that the, the management options are still quite limited and uh, you know, we, we're hoping for big kind of advancements. Have there been any paradigm shifts in terms of how we think about, you know, specifically the management of anorexia nervosa and are there specific modalities that have given us greater success over the, the last few decades? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, as it's yes and no. <laughs> um, no in that I think in general we continue to struggle to have a good recognised treatment of anorexia nervosa that we can say with confidence is going to work in anyone who's mm. with anorexia. Um, having said that, the, the, there have been a couple of... Uh, the, the, the treatment at the moment that has that is out there certainly in Melbourne is something called... and, and Australia and worldwide is something called family-based treatment, which is basically... Um, stating it's basically from the idea that someone with anorexia nervosa is unwell, can't make their own judgments about uh, about their eating experience, and so parents need to take over that in a supportive and caring way to get that weight restoration back. Now, the, the early the early evidence was that that was a very good treatment, um, and certainly the evidence continues to, to suggest that that is better than other treatments available. Having said that, it's become increasingly clear that it's not the answer for anorexia and it's not the answer for many people with anorexia nervosa. Um, so that it, that it's, we've sort of all gone back to the drawing board, I think, in terms of trying to understand uh, what else needs to be done because no other, there's no specific treatment with an evidence base that shows that we've increased our management of anorexia nervosa over the last decades apart from, from family-based treatment which remains imperfect. Uh, you're on Radiotherapy Triple uh, R. We're speaking with uh, Dr Andrew Court about uh, adolescence, anorexia nervosa, um, and uh, situating that in the in the context of COVID over the last couple of years. Uh, we don't have much uh, more time together, Andrew, unfortunately, but just a couple of uh, quick questions before we do wrap up. I'm wondering, you um, alluded to earlier on about how, uh, to some extent, um, anorexia is gendered. I'd love to hear just a, a few more comments about that. And uh, just another thought about the triggers that you also um, uh, alluded to. Is there a distinction to be made between the body image trigger and what, you know, from a layperson's point of view, might, it might appear just simply as another version of self-harm? Ah. 
uh, I do think they're different, but obviously they can be they can be uh, they can join together and be associated together very clearly. And by that, um, if we take a from the gender point of view, first of all, I think that the stage on which anorexia develops with regards to body image and how young people very much a body image focus and young women in particular and are comparing themselves to each other is the, is the theatre and the stage for the development of anorexia nervosa, recognising that I'm also saying that, that, that once you've got anorexia nervosa, it, it's a different experience of that normal experience. I think that once you get it, um, and, it, and it, 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 there's all kinds of factors which continue it going, including a sense of punishing oneself for not being ideal and perfect or good enough at anorexia, which then can certainly get caught up with self-harm and wanting to hurt oneself as a response to that. And then that leads to, or keys into, all those other experiences of self-harm that, you, that you're mentioning and certainly can be anorexia can be associated with self-harm in other ways as well. So I think there's most definitely a linkage between that experience of body and hating oneself and self-harm, but I think it first expresses itself in purely a desired body image desire to lose, to, to, to look better. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Court. Uh, it's Dr. Dilemma here again. Um, I wanted to touch upon your, your other area of interest in, in somatising presentations that we mentioned earlier. So obviously we've, we've all been all very affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns, but perhaps um, the impacts have been felt particularly hard by the young people in our community where their teenage years are obviously so full of such formative experiences and, and, and lots of change, just puberty, exploring identity, study, study pressures, making decisions about future, kind of starting employment, dating, you know, establishing and maintaining your friendship groups. These years, are, these years can be really exciting for young people, but they can also be exceptionally difficult and, and overwhelming, let alone without the pressures of a global pandemic thrown into the mix. Could you, could you touch on, Dr Court, what you've observed of how in times of stress um, psychological problems can, can manifest themselves as, as physical symptoms? Sure. Um, first of all, just to, to, to clarify what, I, what is meant by somatising, and that is someone who's presenting with physical, very real physical symptoms, but where there's not thought to be a medical, physical cause, but it's thought to have some kind of psychological background as its causation. And the, the things that define somatising not only are the very real physical symptoms, but also the fact that they have a psychological background and that the person experiencing them is, is seeking a, a medical cause rather than a psychological cause. Um, and and the, the ways that they present with physical presentations include... Um, biological, physiological pathways which stem from the body's response to stress through things like the autonomic nervous system and the other hormonal responses to stress causing physical changes to the body. Also, that uh, a psychological mechanism where people sort of disconnect and dissociate from their anxiety and stress and then that, that disconnection can lead to a, a physical symptom which is disconnected from their mind and body, which, which protects them from that feeling of anxiety and stress and can present in different ways which have a sort of neurological experience such as things that look like seizures or tics or whatever. Now, the, 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 alongside that, that kind of, as I say, that experience of, of experiencing these physical symptoms, patients often present with the physical symptoms um, stating that that's the medical... That's, caused by some medical problem when they're under underlying stress and anxiety. And that, these, these somatising presentations have been present for, for, many, for a long time. We don't go into historically. But 
in general terms, my perception of, of COVID and the, and the pandemic over the last couple of years is in general terms, somatising itself has not increased in frequency, um, certainly without a doubt. Anxiety presentations, mood presentations have presented significantly over this time. But my, my perception also, though, is that, the, that, 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 that somatic symptoms, as in the symptoms of distress, have certainly increased, but that need to look for a medical cause is, has not increased. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, my, my own experience is the other presentation, that is, and I think it's you know, recognised, the other presentation that has increased during, during COVID as a sort of somatic presentation is, is uh, explosive functional tics. And that's been one, again, one, 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 uh, one symptom on the, th in the, on the stage of, of presentation of a, of a vulnerable or a vulnerable population, uh, and, and in my experience, it's been kids who actually have been, who, who may have uh, an underlying anxiety disorder, an underlying uh, autism spectrum traits, or things which have made it particularly difficult for them to go back and forth in lockdown and back to school, and been an increasing anxiety source of anxiety, which has uh, which has caused in this vulnerable population with a particular presentation. Um, to, to present this particular physical symptom, um, which has then grown in, in sort of, it's also been recognised as grown exponentially both in Melbourne and, and around the world. Mm, fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr Court. Um, unfortunately, I think we are running short of time. We've got a few interesting segments still to come today. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us today. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you this morning. So thank you so much, Dr Court. Thank you very much. It's been a You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr. Sharma, what's caught your attention? Well, I, this to me is a fascinating story. You know, in theory, you know, this is a, a new phenomenon we're seeing that only affects, uh, has affected a few hundred people, kids so far in the world. But my goodness, it has really clarified for me how it is that we look for causes of unexplained things as a medical community and how often the narrative about the cause often is leagues ahead of what the actual scientific hypotheses are. Mm. What I'm talking about here is unexplained causes of hepatitis in children. See, from the start of the year in the UK, they found, roughly speaking, 100 or so children who had developed hepatitis for which they could not find a cause. So the UK authorities, roughly three weeks ago, told the WHO's uh, notification system about this. And they put the alert out to other countries. And so within the last two weeks, it's become obvious that there are, roughly speaking, less than 200 cases in the world of kids with unexplained cases of hepatitis, which is pretty rare to not be able to explain it. Just a, uh, a let's get a fundamental out of the way. What is hepatitis? Hep There's a few of them too, isn't there? That, that's right, yeah. So hepatitis by itself, it just means inflammation of the liver. Hepa refers to liver. Itis, it means inflammation. And there's lots of different causes. Most often it's going to be a viral cause, hepatitis A, B, C, D, and even E. Occasionally it can be due to some toxins, medications, autoimmune diseases. And uh, when we find these in, uh, in kids, most often you can find the cause, cannot find a cause here. Mm. And we're finding many more uh, um, um, numbers of unexplained causes wow. of hepatitis in kids th than ever, which has got everyone begging the question, what's going on? Well, the two main hypotheses that have emerged, 
and one is very dominant at the moment, is this is caused by adenovirus. And in fact, this is what you'll see in headlines everywhere uh, around the world, that this particular strain of an adenovirus, adenovirus being very common, strain 41, has been found in several kids who developed this, uh, mm. this form of hepatitis. But as we know, correlation doesn't mean, yeah. mean causation. Um, and so the, the second most common uh, uh, factor they found in all these kids is COVID, oh, is wow. SARS-CoV-2. And so what we're seeing now is the development of these two competing narratives, panel beta. On one hand, people are saying, well, it's due to a new disease and uh, and it's very possible that this is all because of lockdowns, that lockdowns somehow cause these uh, kind of or holding off these viruses that have all kind of come flooding back as soon as we lifted restrictions and it's kind of done something. And uh, if you, it, when I'm not just talking about tabloid journalism, we're seeing like you know, new scientists, etc., put up headlines saying, uh, could lockdowns be implicated in the cause of these uh, unexplained hepatitis when we don't even know what virus is actually causing this? Yeah. The other camp, on the other hand, we've got are people who are saying, how can you overlook COVID? It's so obvious it's COVID. Um, we found uh, you know, back in 2020 even some cases of hepatitis linked uh, with COVID. And uh, what we're seeing here from 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 the mainstream now, from mainstream is people constantly trying to downplay COVID in kids, which we know has been such a bitterly uh, fought issue uh, all pandemic. So um, you've, you've pointed to a couple of attempts to look for the common denominators. Is is lifestyle or socioeconomic matters are they even um, in the picture? So. They're, they're going through these things bit by bit. I actually have not seen mention of uh, of those things yet. I think they're going to try and look for the common biological things. What they've already started to do, however, is exclude things like toxins and, uh-huh. and foods and medications. So those they've been able to kind of um, uh, to be able to exclude so far. But the thing with with issues like socioeconomic factors, I mean, we know that that's always going to be in yeah. the mix. Because there are you know, quite literally billions of kids kind of exposed to that, it's pretty difficult yeah. to draw a line between that and a relatively rare disorder. Which actually, when you think about it, is what makes it very difficult to tell if COVID is causing uh, these unexplained causes of hepatitis too. Because when you think about it, especially in somewhere like the UK, pretty much all the kids have had COVID. So you're talking about things like adenovirus yeah. or COVID, basically these infections that are absolutely everywhere, affecting you know, lots and lots and lots of kids, and yet very few people who've actually got the disease. Huge amounts of exposure, very weird kind of um, dis- disease outcome, and it becomes very difficult from a kind of scientific point of view to connect one to the other, because then you know, the, the other thought that occurs is, well, if millions of kids have been affected, why did only 200 get it so far? One of the major questions is also why now? You know, we've been um, in the middle of this pandemic for two, two and a half years, and we haven't been seeing these rates of hepatitis in children. And it is important to note that that hepatitis is a spectrum, and you can have mild hepatitis and severe, you know, acute liver failure requiring a transplant hepatitis. And some of these children are very, very unwell. Um, so I guess the question also remains in my head is why now, particularly if it is COVID, what has changed to make it um, these, um, is it just that we're picking them up more often and we're looking for them or is, have these been happening the whole time? You know, quite a few questions in my mind, in my mind remain. So are these kids, are they presenting in any way any differently than other hepatitis cases? 
No, the presentations are pretty much the same, which is you're seeing general unwellness, nausea, vomiting, jaundice, that kind of yellowing yeah. of the yeah. skin. Uh, it's only when you, you do the tests... Well, even when we do the tests, you're seeing the liver function tests have been elevated, but it's when they look for the specific cause okay. they can't quite find that. So, and while cause is um, so up in the air, what does that mean for prognosis and treatment? Well, uh, I, I think, you know, honestly, if, if, we, if it's either one of these viruses, I don't really know if it means much for the, for the treatment at all. Okay. By the point that hepatitis is happening, it's a reaction to... Uh, it's, it's inflammation that's caused by the immune system reacting to the virus, whichever of the, of the kind of viruses it is. Mm. And you know, that, that there's only so much you can do. And there are things you can do, but it's not likely that you're going to be able to kind of tailor it to uh, that cause. However, I think the big issue is going to be if this ends up uh, being due to uh, SARS-CoV-2, is this going to completely change our approach to this virus? See, one, one of the most... The fundamental aspect of this virus that has dictated how it's controlled around the world is this presumption, mostly correct, that this does not affect kids as severely as it affects adults. Right. right? On, when you look at the, the, the big numbers, sure. th- that's how we've you know, kept schools open, you're only vaccinating adults, blah, blah, blah. But if that happens, if, if there's a connection drawn between SARS-CoV-2 and, and uh, hepatitis mm. here completely will change things, even if it's only affecting a few hundred kids, because we know parents and, and people with the best of intentions are so sensitive of even the smallest risks to children because yeah, that's how sure. much we value them. Yeah. Did you mention in the setup um, what sort of numbers we're talking about? Sorry, Dr. Sharma. What, no, so, what? We, so roughly in the world so far, we've found slightly less than 200 cases, which okay. is very, very few. Sure. And yet, exactly as Dr. Neo said, uh, who knows what their background rate uh, is and who knows how many more cases we're going to find in the next few weeks. So many unknowns. And one of the things that's already making me uh, very happy about this discussion is the number of questions we've all raised here without any answers. And yet, <laughs> if, you, if you read the, the, the headlines, that is not the impression you'd get at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are saying it's COVID or it's adenovirus and it's adenovirus that's caused by lockdowns. And people saying, no, it's because you lifted the restrictions. Who knows? And I think that's kind of the bigger picture here, that the science is you know, kind of doing its part, the hypotheses are there, and we just can't give into temptation and get ahead. Is it another example, you know, talking more editorially now about how it's being discussed, is it another example of just this um, reluctance for authorities to say they don't know something? Totally. To- I-, I think that's what's happening here. Um, not... The, the authorities are just you know, obviously not giving answers because they, they don't have them. And then there's yeah. this vacuum that just gets filled in with everything. Whereas I think what editorialising here, I think the uh, the authorities should be very loud and say, we literally do not know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stop giving us your, your theories and your headlines. It, it tells us, uh, and we're in an election campaign, aren't we? So it tells us a lot about ourselves as voters, what we expect of our, our leaders and... You know that that we are reluctant to get behind anybody who says they don't know. Um, we'd rather them be wrong, I guess. Oh, <laughs> Is there... the extrapolation? I think that's also part of medicine in general. It's something that you know we're taught from the very very beginning of our career to say I don't know, rather than lie and yeah. rather than make it up. It's I don't know, but we will do our best yeah. to try and find out. It's is... the only good answer here. Yep. Great stuff, Dr. Sharma. And was that you, Dr. Neo? Are you still there? Oh. <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll just log off now. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Returning our mind to Pop Goes Your Health, a, uh, a segment that we're we're running with to take a look at things that are popping up in um, uh, the wellness industry. Uh, in this case, we're taking a look at um, nasal tanning, more specifically nasal spray tanning. What is it? Heavens to Betsy. Um, well, it's, it, 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 it is what it says on the pack. It's a spray that goes up your nose and the attempt is to have it um, affect um, your skin pigmentation. Now, I get tongue-tied at the best of times with some of the language the medical science um, profession puts for me. So bear with me as I try and make a compare and contrast between melanotin and melatonin. <laughs> these are these are melatonin. I think a lot of Australians, because of their uh, sun awareness and their sunscreen orthodoxies, are, are very familiar with that. But we're contrasting that with this um, other hormone called melanotin. Have I got that right, Dr. Sharma? I don't know. I really don't know, <laughs> and I never know how to pronounce it. Fact, when a friend contacted me about a month ago, said, "Hey, what do you think of this melatonin or whatever?" I was like, "Do you mean melatonin, the sleeping medication?" Because no. The other stuff. Yeah. And I Googled it and I was aghast. Aghast. <laughs> so what, what I'm going to do for the rest of the segment is just call it MT2. MT2. Nice. Um, so this is it's, so it's a chemical and it uh, mimics the hormone. So itself is not a hormone. It's mimicking a hormone in our body. Um, and it, uh, is natu- the hormone itself is naturally present. Um, but this um, addition via the spray is uh, an enhancement or um, some kind of stimulant to, um, uh, to really uh, accelerate the process or the effect that it has on ultimately on the, on the pigment. So a uh, somebody who's using this spray will um, use a pump up their uh, <laughs> nasal cavity. It's a very funny point to pause at. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> nasal capacity. Pa- it's, it's, it's pausing for effect, <laughs> and then and then go um, and um, uh, go into a tanning um, salon um, as well often. Um, previous to this process, somebody interested in uh, getting this, the tan um, this way would actually use an injection. So one part of a possible explanation um, for the uptake in the spray is people you know, feeling much more comfortable with sprays than injections and all the connotations that come with that, all the discomfort that comes with that. But like so much that's in the wellness industry, this sounds pretty innocuous, but... It comes with some really significant risks. And um, I'm holding up to the microphone now a picture of a young lady who's clearly been um, using the spray. And, um, and yes, there's been change to her skin pigmentation, but it's very inconsistent across the face mm-hmm. and uh, very dramatic uh, in one patch on her, on her as well. Um, using your Google fingers, listeners, um, you'll be able to come up with a bit there. So some of the dangers are including um, things like, um, you know, this kind of rash-looking um, result. Um, there's uh, an actual... Uh, belief that it could actually be increasing um, skin cancer. Um, There's um, likely uh, that it could um, uh, generate melanomas, um, side effects, things like nausea, vomiting, headaches, dizziness. 
Um, and uh, interestingly, from the University of Auckland in New Zealand, um, they had a mind to uh, check into it, and it may actually cause spontaneous erections a few hours after application. Wow. Okay. Some so some alternative uses here. Possibly. <laughs> That's right. See, it's not all bad. <laughs> What are your initial reactions? Dr. Lama, what do you reckon? Uh, questionable. I haven't really heard of this uh, process before. How much does it set you back, a, a bottle of this uh, magical nasal spray? Right. So one of the curiosities in that regard is that it's clearly not regulated, but it's easily available um, online. And mm. um, I think you can get like a 15, 30, or is it a 30 mil spray for 110 bucks? I think I saw that on eBay. Right, um, right. Yeah. So it doesn't come cheap, the tan. Doesn't come cheap. I guess I um, I when you put all those uh the risks of risks and benefits, uh, you weigh them up. Um, I'm I'm not sure that it's falling in the favour of, of experimenting. No, but but it's being promoted heavily. It's a TikTok trend, so it's of its it's of its time. And uh, the influencers, as we know, on on platforms like TikTok and Instagram, clearly have um, well, as the name suggests, influence. And we heard from um. Uh, Dr. Court earlier talking about how those sorts of platforms can inform uh, body uh, um, sensitivities. Mm. I I can't imagine that these influencers have any kind of ulterior motives. I, <laughs> I can't think of a single one actually. <laughs> it's it's another example of looking for the silver bullet, isn't it? Mm. And and I think there's this you know, quote-unquote, gap in the market. Uh, people want to look more tanned, and especially in a country like Australia, we have banned uh, solariums for good reason yeah, because reason. they cause skin cancer. And now you have something else that's going, kind of trying to, to fill that market, fill that need that we've got to have skin that looks a slightly different colour. Yeah, look, needless to say, the, the theoretical risk of cancer here is very likely because, you know, if this... Um, you know, hormone analogue seems to be working the way it claims, which is to stimulate melanocytes, these cells that release melanin. I mean, if you have a slow-growing, well, just a, a melanoma that's that's present, this could, in theory, kind of accelerate it. But the, the difficulty here is, well, how do I know that? Hmm. Well, yeah, let's run a trial. Let's get 300 people together and give them this stuff and see if they get a melanoma. No, that's hmm. not going to happen. And this is always the issue with trying to caution people against uh, uh, things like this, which is you've got this reasonably speaking uh, kind of unnecessary intervention with potentially a huge theoretical risk. Uh, you are safer just you know, not getting it. Yeah. Um, but I, we can't point to you know, this enormous body of proof saying that this p- product in particular is dangerous. So when I was speaking to f- uh, that friend of mine from a month ago, this is part of the challenge I had was um, trying to, to explain to them and their friends why this is dangerous without having the quoted studies for what is essentially kind of a, a new substance. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to kind of have this talk about theoretical risks uh, and everything, which to, to someone who's really keen on using the product, it's, you know, it, it can be a little bit difficult to convince them of that. Well, I feel like that's the, the difficulty with the precautionary principle in general in the idea that, you know, we don't know that these things have harm for sure. We have no proof. We have first principle in the sense that we can work from what we think the pathways are and what the likely outcomes could be, but there is no safe way for us to get proof, which... I'll, does not convince a lot of people and a lot of people will engage with this because there is no real documented harm um and i think that's just something that society will have to 
I think um, let's let's keep an eye on this idea of um, proof and, as Dom, Dr. Dilemma um, alluded to earlier, this kind of risk management equation that comes up because. I wonder if it's not that very different than knowing all the harms that cigarette smoking or alcohol can do to us and yet we still do mm. it. So thinking that this does harm to us may not be the deterrent it might be for, for other right. people. Very good point. Hey, um, that brings us to time. Fabulous hanging out with uh, Dr. Neo, <laughs> Dr. Sharma <laughs> and, and Dr. Dilemma. Our special guest was Dr. Um, Andrew Court from the Royal Children's talking to us about adolescence, anorexia and um, functional neurology. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page. <laughs>